This is Inside the Writer's Head with Danny McLean, the Library Foundation of Cincinnati and Hamilton Counties Writer in Residence for 2020. The Library Foundation's Writer in Residence program promotes writing, literacy, and creativity while furthering the library's mission of connecting people with the world of ideas and information. Here is Danny McLean. Welcome to Inside the Writer's Head. I'm Danny McLean, the library's writer in residence for 2020. On this podcast, you can expect conversations with writers and other lovers of books, journalism, libraries, and the literary arts. Today, I'm proud to welcome the person whose Twitter feed provides me with 90% of my local news intake, journalist extraordinaire, Nick Swartzel. Nick has been a staff writer and news editor at CityBeat for six years. His primary areas of coverage include law enforcement and the criminal justice system, housing, systemic and individual issues around poverty, development and urban land use, transportation and breaking news. He's covered many protests, the 2018 Fountain Square mass shooting, and has now turned his attention to the COVID-19 crisis. He's currently furloughed due to the pandemic, but continues to contribute to City Beat on a regular pro bono basis until he can resume full-time paid work. Welcome, Nick. Thanks so much for joining me today. Hi, Danny. Thanks for having me on. Well, let's start with what I think is your most recent project for City Beat, uh, Cincinnati's Strangest Spring. I just thought it was such an incredible piece. Could you describe it for us and talk a little bit about what you've learned while collecting those stories? How's Cincinnati faring under the, the threat of COVID? Uh, absolutely. Uh, thanks for the kind words about the piece. Uh, it's a lot different than most of the things I, I usually do for City Beat. It's a little bit more of a kind of like reported um, essay, uh, more than a straight news piece. And uh, it kind of came about because I was doing all these interviews and uh, talking to all these people about their experiences and then having my own sort of experience as we all are in this, you know, really unique time. And um, what I, when I would try to write straight news stories about any of these particular experiences, it felt really disconnected. Like I was, you know, getting at somebody's struggle with the unemployment system or the fact they couldn't get tested or um, even, you know, Spring Grove closing because too many people were going there. And, and it just felt like that wasn't really getting at the truth of what this moment is and in, in, in the way that, um, that it could have. And so I, I, what I attempted to do is write a, a sort of piece saying like, here's what I'm experiencing and here's what other people I'm talking to are experiencing specific to Cincinnati. Um, and not just the, the numbers of people that are infected or, or the, you know, um, economic numbers there, but like really the experiential stuff. And, that's always going to be an imperfect kind of thing to try to do, but I, I did the best I could at it. And, um, you know, I, I'm glad to be to have the sort of privilege of uh, trying to trying to record a little bit of this uh, at this time. Yeah, I just I mean, the, the writing's beautiful. I love your descriptions of Spring Grove Cemetery in the springtime. There's this whole kind of layer of the story that's about like reawakening and nature and kind of that we're existing in this in-between state right now where you know stay-at-home orders and we're it's just it's a really nuanced piece um i really enjoyed it and while i was reading it i was wondering how you are staying safe while reporting like what are you doing to make sure that you stay healthy while you're out there yeah absolutely um so i'm 
obviously when I when I have to do a, an interview in person, which personally I feel like there are times when that's the only way to do the kind of interview that you really need to do for a story. Um, I am observing social distance, so staying, I think, like eight feet apart, you know, more than six feet. Uh, I'm wearing a mask. Uh, I'm hoping the other person is also wearing a mask. Uh, that's been the case, I think, 100% of the time. I don't think I've interviewed anybody who wasn't. Um, and uh, also just kind of making sure that I'm keeping... I, I take my temperature before I go out in the morning and make sure I'm not showing any symptoms of anything. Um, and, uh, you know, checking in with the other person about what they're comfortable with, too, not just sort of like the uh, practical measures we need to take, but like, hey, like, what's going to make you feel safe during this interview? Um, and that, that varies a little bit from person to person, but, uh, you know, just trying to be as safe as possible, admitting that it's not perfect. You know, perfect would be not coming in contact with anybody at all, but... Yeah, another thing I really loved about the piece was that you go back to 1918 and talk about how Cincinnati dealt with um, the Spanish flu, um, which I just, the more historical, the more people talk about a, there being historical precedent for this pandemic, just the, the, the more thankful I am, you know, for people who do that, because there's a way in which right now at this moment, there are all these like conspiracy theories floating about. People just seem really hard-pressed to believe that like no there are global pandemics like this is part of the human experience and i think um i just appreciated that reminder and you going into the archives and going back to old inquirer articles and talking about what the mayor was up to then and the public health measure measures that were put in place then i think it just added a really helpful um layer to the story so thank you for that yeah yeah thanks absolutely and i think um I too, and you're seeing a lot of people saying like, "Yeah, you know, is this is this a real thing that's happening? Is it was this planned? Was you know?" And uh, I think going back and, and revisiting what happened roughly a hundred years ago, which is about the amount of time we usually expect between these sort of occurrences, it reminds us like this is a, a thing that happens um, in, for lack of a better term, in, in nature. It's part of the natural world and it not to minimize it or, or make it seem less tragic, but it's a reminder that yeah, we as humans don't have control over everything. And I think that is some of some of the conspiracy theories and some of the sort of like disbelief is is people not really wanting to admit that to themselves, I think, that, you know, we don't have control over this 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 world all the time and, and we can't always control our fate to a hundred percent. Um and and so I think the nineteen eighteen pandemic is a good reminder of that, but also some of the parallels are, are um, I think, kind of striking and um, worth paying attention to. Absolutely. While I was reading it, I was um, just thinking, you obviously put a lot of effort into it, and I was, and in the piece, you refer to yourself as a furloughed reporter. And so you're currently contributing to City Beat Pro Bono. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but in mid-March, you were one of seven staffers from across the paper in sales, circulation, production, and editorial who were furloughed. Tell me about your decision to keep working uh, without pay. Yeah. Um, to me, it's kind of a, 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 I mean, it wasn't as much a decision as like a, um, like a, just a, a reaction. It was just like, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. Like, uh, I'm really privileged to be in a place where uh, my rent is very low. I have some money saved up. Um, I'm not in an immediate situation where I'm going to have to go out and, and get whatever job I can find. Uh, and I appreciate that other people are in that situation. And that's like, you know, a very tragic situation to be in. 
I'm not in that situation. So um, I thought, what can I do to contribute during this time? And also, like, let's, I'm just going to be real with myself. Like, I would be doing this anyways. And um, so to me, it was it was kind of a no-brainer. I was like, yeah, I'm going to continue to report on this because this is one of the, you know, defining moments of this decade, probably this century. And also because, like, that's what I do. And uh, I'm also lucky enough to be moderately financial sec- financially secure right now. So all those things made it seem like a pretty easy decision. Yeah. Um, you know, there have been massive media layoffs in recent weeks. Um, the drop in advertising is hitting local news hard nationwide. We've seen this at the Enquirer. It's hitting um, online and magazines as well. Yesterday, 68 people were laid off from the Atlantic, and that was just the latest kind of headline about media layoffs. Um, I know it's not your job to look into a crystal ball or you don't you know, profess to look into a crystal ball and have answers about the future, but I wonder if you have any thoughts on how this pandemic might change journalism in the long run. I mean, City Beat depends on advertising related to people gathering. Um, do you have any thoughts on how we might see journalism shift because of what we're living through? Yeah, uh, and I, I think that's a great question. And I think you could apply that question to a lot of different industries. I think, you know, as many people have pointed out, that this pandemic is uh, really driving some, you know, spikes into fault lines that already existed and, and just prying them wide open. And I think journalism is one of those industries where, you know, the trajectory has been clear for a long time and um, the models are going to have to change and they, they've been slowly changing. And, and, you know, I think CityBeat had a really good model uh, in terms of the way it diversified its revenue through events and uh, um, digital uh, revenue and, and print revenue and, and kind of splitting that up so that it, no one thing was like the only make or break revenue stream. But, the you know, <laughs> this, this uh, pandemic hit most of those revenue streams pretty hard. And I think a lot of publications are, are going through a similar thing. And I, you know, like my, my fear is that we're going to continue to have less and less paid journalism because of this. Um, my hope is that there are more nonprofit news outlets that, that arise out of this and that model becomes a more prevalent model. You know, like it, it exists and is, is thriving in some places. I think of the Texas Tribune is a really good example or ProPublica. Um, I think we need to see more of that. And I, I hope that we do. Um, I don't want to like say we are going to, but that's my hope. Um, and in the meantime, I, you know, like we're going to continue to see these layoffs. And, and it's not just because of the pandemic. It's because of the structure of the way media outlets are owned and uh, the way they're operated right now. Um, the pandemic's made it worse, but there was an underlying structural issue with, you know, publications, major main, like mainstream media publications and others, too, that, that made this bad. Yeah, I share your hope that um, the nonprofit model is able to come to our rescue, but then so much depends on philanthropy. Um, And I know there's been a lot of um, conversation within philanthropy about how to better support uh, news gathering. And I, yeah, I just share your, your hopes that, um, that they're able to, that they're able to kind of bring to scale what they do. I I think, you, you know, I think you mentioned ProPublica, there are these kind of national nonprofit newsrooms um, that cover 
national issues quite well. I would love to see more of the ones that focus on local or regional journalism. So like the Texas Tribune you mentioned, I think ProPublica is branching out. Like I think they have like an Illinois newsroom now, um, but I just worry about what happens when our local media, um, you know, our local news outlets um, are gutted and then we have kind of a glut of like coverage you know online or from the times or the washington post and then but not a lot of coverage of what's happening in the local school board or at city hall and so i'm hoping that that model figures out how to do that well absolutely yeah and i will say that i think um, local outlets are are trying to figure it out and experimenting a little bit Uh, city beat has introduced a sort of membership uh, model where you can pay I think it's, I, I, you know, I don't want to say the wrong thing. I think it's uh, name your own price and, and you become a member for a year and I think you get some, some extras uh, with, that, with that membership. But really you're, you're supporting in the same way that like a, you know, NPR affiliate fund drive would work. And so, you know, like uh, papers that uh, other alt-weeklies that we're affiliated with are doing the same thing. And hopefully something like that works. Uh, <laughs> I, I really hope something like that works for my sake and for City Beat's sake because we need City Beat. Um, but, uh, you know, I think that there are experiments going on and I, I hope locally they're, they're successful because I think at the local levels where, uh, journalism has really suffered the most. Mm-hmm. And we need those local watchdogs, right? I mean, we need people who are, who are showing up. Yeah. Um, so one of the things just to stick on, on this, um, this issue of how, COVID-19, the threat of COVID-19 is changing everything in our world right now. One of the things that popped out at me from your um, from your bio is that you covered the 2016 Republican National Convention in Cleveland. That has always been, I've never covered a, um, a, a party's convention, um, you know, in a uh, in a presidential election year. And so I was just so curious if you could maybe talk just a little bit about what that was like, but I also wonder what what you think will be lost if the party's conventions are held remotely. Based on what you saw, you know, kind of going down in 2016 at the RNC, what what would be lost if these conventions don't happen in the way that they're traditionally held? Yeah, yeah. So the, the 2016 um, convention, the Republican convention, was, was my first national convention that I'd, I'd covered. Um, and I, I think um, it's going to be hard for me to talk about what we might lose if we don't um, have them anymore because it was the only one I've covered. And also, I think it is probably pretty different than national conventions that had happened before. Um, in the sort of energy that was going on there, I, th- I think uh, the the way where the Republican Party was at in that moment is, is kind of unique. Uh, and uh, the sort of activism that was going on within both the party and outside the party about the nominee. Um, <laughs> uh, but I, w- I will say that uh, I think that moment and maybe all conventions to one degree or another are, are like a barometer of, of what's coming in terms of uh, national politics and especially presidential politics. Uh, and uh, that a lot of the sort of energy and, and clashes that I saw in that in that space and outside the, the convention center, obviously with protesters and various different groups uh, advocating various different things. Um, a lot of that has has uh, continued to play out, you know, beyond the convention. And, you know, like there were things that I might have known about uh, yeah, in terms of where the Republican Party or right-leaning politics was headed uh, before the convention that I saw illustrated very, very vividly 
and it brought it home to me in a new way at that convention and, and uh, showed me like where the right was going in, in, a, in a way that I hadn't expected. And the left, too, in, like in terms what? of like... Uh, I think... Yeah. What'd you uh, see? Just in terms of this, I think uh, the more blatant and more widespread than I would have thought uh, signifying of different white nationalist groups uh, outside the convention center. And and in a few cases, I saw some of the folks who were outside the convention in their sort of white nationalist t-shirts inside the convention too, in their dress shirts later. Um, I, you know, like I had, yeah, yeah. You know, and, and, you know, that, that kind of little observation is, is troubling for sure. Uh, yeah, so, so that, I think, um, the, the gun rights element, I think, was very strong at the, at the 2016 RNC in a way that f- I've heard from other reporters it, it was not in, in the past. Uh, uh, I think the sort of anti-Trump protests and, you know, really anti-Republican Party protests were also um, surprising to me in that the sort of pan-left that was happening, like all, all the sort of different niche left groups uh, that were there were there in pretty large numbers and were pretty vocal and uh, the, the sort of those groups um, being as active as they were in presidential politics, which I, I haven't normally seen, uh, was was interesting and, and a kind of signifier of a, of a new dynamic going on, at least to me. So I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, it does. Absolutely, because what you're talking about is that it's a stage, right? It's like it's a physical place where people show up. And, you know, obviously the the party that's hosting has its um, the more formal elements of what's going on inside of the convention center or whatever. But um, the opposing party also shows up or not not necessarily that like left organizers and activists there represented the Democratic Party, but they did represent a different set of interests and so when you have these conventions at least it's a physical space where people show up to to contest these these issues and and i'm curious i don't know the republicans i haven't been following the news on this but the republicans may very well gather anyway but the uh, you know the democrats aren't likely to and so what happens when you just when everything's happening online and so you don't get to see i think that example of like the person in the white nationalist t-shirt outside who then puts on a suit and goes inside, you don't have that stage and on which to watch that kind of thing play out. So yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. I, and I would say like, to make a not very good metaphor, I think that the, the convention itself is like the the article and then the, the things that are going on around the, the convention are kind of the comment section. And to see to see that comment section in real life and realize like you can't just write off some of these ideas as like, a bot or a troll or like a you know like one random person like no these are people who are advocating these ideas out in public they're real humans and there are some cases dozens of them you know and I, I think like seeing that in real life and seeing the photos of it or, or covering it you know uh, is uh, different than seeing a news article or uh, an online you know mediated sort of web version of, of a convention. Well, let's go back. I want to talk about your career and kind of the the start of your career. So you're from Hamilton. You got your undergraduate degree in English and political science from Miami. Uh, After college, you freelanced for different publications, including uh, community press covering Fairfield Township. Um, And then you spent two years with the AmeriCorps Public Ally Program here in Cincinnati. Talk about, well, I'm actually curious about your time covering Fairfield. What, 
you know, in my own experience, I learned so much covering small communities and, and just like showing up at city council meetings and, and school board meetings. What what did you learn covering Fairfield? What were you what were you reporting on? And were there any lessons that you learned at that stage in your career that you've carried with you? Yeah, yeah, it's a good question. Uh, so I'll start off by putting out something that I even mess up sometimes. Fairfield Township is and Fairfield, the city are two separate entities. Fairfield Township is even smaller and it's kind of a, yeah, in the, with the lack of like an actual like municipal government, the township trustees kind of run the township. Uh, so it's like in between Hamilton and Fairfield and like uh, maybe Westchester, that kind of area there. Um, and it's like mostly suburban. It, it, there's some rural land out there too. Uh, and um, I, just to give you kind of an idea of like how I got into that role, I, uh, I worked at a bookstore in a outdoor mall <laughs> Um, after I graduated college and I was the, the barista there and uh, this woman Belina uh, was a regular of mine and she'd come in and get you know her coffee and one day she swiped her the sort of business card business account for her community presses and I asked her like oh what you know what kind of publishing do you do and she told me about these community newspapers that she had and I was like oh like that sounds cool and she's like yeah if you ever want to cover Fairfield Township trustees go for it and I'll, I'll pay you for it and that was an incredible opportunity it was amazing like uh, I hadn't done a lot of reporting before that uh, I knew a little bit about the politics of Fairfield Township but not a ton and uh, it was super interesting I learned a lot about um, development um, and uh, uh, sort of how fire departments and police departments get funded and uh, a lot about the politics of uh, funding schools and uh, all these sort of nuts and bolts things as well as like the politics, like very, very local politics, I think you can see politics play out really much more um, uh, out in the open in these little places sometimes because there just aren't a million people watching. And there was, most of the time, there were no other reporters there, um, if, if you could even call I get, you know, like, yeah, I was a reporter. Um, and so, yeah, it was really interesting to see all of that at play. And, uh, really have a place to try to learn how to be a reporter uh, that was supportive and and, uh, and also just kind of like, yeah, write an article, like make sure you try to get the facts right and let's just see, let's just see how people react to it, you know. Did you have a good editor? Did you feel like you were working with someone who could help you get better? Yeah, yeah, to a degree. I think, uh, so Belina um, was not, that wasn't her, her purview before. She was a stay-at-home mom who uh, had worked as an engineer for GE before that. Um, but she was a very sharp uh, person, both in terms of, like, her command of language and in terms of uh, knowing what's going on in the township. So uh, even though she was not a trained editor, she, she, for my level where I was at, was definitely able to help me get better uh, with the nuts and bolts of writing and, and of reporting and, and, uh, and uh, you know, all the things you need to be a ground level basic reporter so I was very fortunate to have that opportunity it's kind of like this formative experience for me um, and I'm so grateful that she she gave me that that opportunity so then you decided to go off to journalism school as for a graduate degree and you went to University of Texas at Austin while you were there you interned at the Texas Observer and the Texas Tribune and I noticed, so you said your master's thesis was on media coverage in neighborhoods undergoing economic and demographic change. I wonder if you just talk a bit about your journalism school experience. You interned at these great places. 
Um, you already mentioned the Texas Tribune as being a place that's doing, that's using that nonprofit model, you know, and really succeeding. Um, but yeah, just tell us a bit about your time in J School. And I'm really struck by the fact that, um, you know, what you chose for your master's thesis, I would think that that would really inform the kind of reporting that you're doing now, since you're covering areas like over the Rhine and the West End, I'm thinking about your 2017 story, Moved Aside. Um, so also curious, you know, what, how that your research for your master's, master's has informed the reporting that you're doing on gentrification and, um, you know, economic and demographic change here in Cincinnati. Yeah, yeah. Um, so my grad school experience was, was fantastic. Um, and I, I have to say that I think doing two years of AmeriCorps with uh, public allies in Cincinnati really set me up to be able to get accepted into grad school and pay for grad school because there's a sort of education award you get when you uh, do that. Right. And so, yeah, so I want to I want to give thanks to Public Allies and, and AmeriCorps yeah. in general for that. It was also an amazing experience. What was your placement? I was curious about that. What was your placement at public during those Public Allies years? I uh, I was at the University of Cincinnati uh, um, Center for Economics, Education, and Research. Mm which was an interesting experience and, and got, you know, a whole other sort of view of uh, how people view economic issues and, um, you know, uh, the sort of economic state of Cincinnati neighborhoods, especially neighborhoods in the quote-unquote inner city. Um, so, yeah, it was, it, was a, it was an interesting, informative experience, and a lot of the other things that uh, go on in public allies beyond the placement were also really, really good and, and uh, valuable to me. Um, so I, I took all of that into, into grad school, uh, and having learned so much about uh, the way some of our neighborhoods in Cincinnati are treated, I, I really wanted to know more about when we talk about a neighborhood like, say, the West End or over the Rhine, um, why is it so different depending on who's talking? You know, like, why why is the sort of experience of that neighborhood, the like, the the idea of what that neighborhood means, like even the boundaries of the neighborhood, like why why is that so different depending on who's talking about it? And uh, you know, I, 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 while I was at Austin, the, the city was changing dramatically, and that you know, the word gentrification gets thrown around a lot, and I, I like the original meaning of that word uh, that sociologists used, and it's sort of migrated into maybe something more vague in general now. But the neighborhood change was happening in, in, in Austin, like, rapidly during that time. So, you know, my experience in Cincinnati and my having this question about, like, why why do people talk about neighborhoods so differently? And then seeing this, like, sort of rapid change happening in Austin at the same time kind of combined into this this thesis of, well, let's, like, take a look at, like, how the newspaper of record in, in, in Austin treated, talked about these neighborhoods for the past 15 years, 20 years. Did it change? And, and it absolutely did. I did a lot of like content analysis, so I was sort of like seeing what kind of words were, was the was the paper of record using, you know, what kind of words was this, there was a small uh, black run press in uh, East Austin, which is a predominantly African American neighborhood, you know, how were they talking about the neighborhood, and then how are long term residents talking about the neighborhood, and like, how are those different, and so that was like the first part of the thesis, and then I, I got lucky enough to come back to Cincinnati in between my first and second year of grad school to do the same thing in Cincinnati. Um, it was a little bit harder to do the content analysis on the Enquirer because a lot of their archives are locked up and at the time I didn't really have a way to... I guess there's maybe some like third party like you can use to get them, but at the time I didn't know that that existed. So their archives were a little harder to find. But I, you know, I did interview a lot of people, kind of like looked at the current state of how Overland is being talked about 
in the newspaper. And yeah, I found some big differences and, and, and tried to tease out like why those differences exist. So was that for your, your thesis? Did you do a comparative look at Austin and Cincinnati or you just did the Cincinnati research on your own? No, that was for both of those were for the thesis, and uh, uh, oh, okay. yeah, and then trying to do like a less in-depth analysis of like some other places. Uh, I think I did Pittsburgh, uh, D.C., and maybe Oakland, but kind of just mostly uh, pointing out the work that other people had done around similar issues in those places, and looking at a little bit of census data and a little bit of like where those where those cities are shifting and how news media might be changing the way they talk about those places too. So, yeah. What? Let's go back to, you mentioned the use of the word gentrification. Um, tell me how, you said you like the kind of original meaning of the word that sociologists use. Tell, what is that? How, how do you understand that word? Yeah, uh, it's a super great question. Um, so from what I know, the sort of person who is known for using the word first, and that doesn't mean she was the first person, but... Uh, Ruth Glass, uh, sociologist, uh, she specifically included talking about displacement and working class people in her definition of gentrification. So gentrification is when working class people are displaced from a neighborhood due to people who have a higher level of economic security and power taking an interest in and moving into those neighborhoods. Um, And that, to me, really highlights the really interesting question about that dynamic and, and the sort of question of justice and fairness and equity and uh, being able to have some some say over where you live and uh, what goes on in the place that you've called home. Uh, and I think more recently, people have started to use the term gentrification to just mean improvement of a neighborhood. So like, there's a coffee wow. shop here. You know, I, I have I've, not heard that. <laughs> really? Well, that, that's great. Like, like a kind of like value free, like it's just kind of this positive, you know, a sensibly positive force. I haven't heard it used like that. Yeah, and I was at a I was at a panel discussion a couple of years ago where uh, they were talking about neighborhood change, and uh, somebody said, "Well, you know, like we keep talking about gentrification, like it's a bad thing, and really all it is is like extending the opportunity to live in a place that has uh, middle class amenities in it." And I'm like, "That is not my understanding of this word," you know. And I, I've heard that again and again from people. Like, and I think there's a I think there's a confusion. I think that there's this confusion between displacement and um, the changes that, that happen in a neighborhood when there's more investment in that neighborhood. And I think more investment often does lead to displacement, but I, I, I really think for a productive conversation to happen, we need to delineate those two things as different. Because I think a lot of times people that are concerned about displacement, one of the arguments that they get pushback about is like, oh, you just don't want anything good to ever happen in this neighborhood. And that, from what I've you know, heard from people who are activists or, um, you know, kind of advocates for renters and uh, low-income people, moderate-income people, is, no, we, we do want investment in these neighborhoods, but it's got to it's gotta respect the people who are already there. So I think that's the root of, like, where, I, where I, I'm a little wary about using the term gentrification because people do use it differently in my experience. Um, so I'm thinking, so after grad school, you, you spent a year covering Congress and federal agencies for the Dallas Morning News and the DC Bureau. And then you came back to Cincinnati for a job at City Beat. And you've won a ton of awards during your, your six year run at City Beat. You've been recognized locally and nationally. Um, late last year, I remember seeing news that you had won a journalism award from the Cincinnati Preservation Association. I find that sometimes, you know, 
we don't always win awards for the stories that are necessarily our favorites or the ones that we're you know the, the proudest of i wonder if you could just talk a bit about some of the your favorite stories that you've written um about Cincinnati in these past six years, uh, and maybe those are the stories that have that have gotten a lot of attention. But uh, j- if if folks are just hearing this interview and they want to go do a deep dive into the Nick Swartzell archives, where should they start? What would you be excited to have them read? Yeah, um, so I, I have like sort of two genres of stories that I I really try to um, when somebody says like, oh, what have you written? I, I'm like, oh, check this out. And one are the stories that actually made me feel good to report and, and there's something good going on in the world and, and like in Cincinnati. And um, the others are the ones where it's like, no, this was pretty bad and it was really hard to report on this, but some kind of thing happened because of it or, or at least in part, you know. And so I think in that latter category, the series of stories that uh, City Beat did about uh, the stadium in the West End and... Um, uh, the impact that was having on people who live in the West End. I, I'm proud of those stories because I think it actually they actually helped contribute to a change and um, materially impacted some people who might have had to move a lot earlier uh, or might not have been able to stay in the neighborhood if the things that were happening didn't come to light. I'm, I'm talking specifically in one instance about a 99-year-old woman who's now 100 uh, who was living in the basically the shadow of the stadium and um, the building she was living in was purchased and she was told she had to leave and uh, by bringing that to light uh, we were able to affect an outcome that that I think was better for her and and better for her neighbors who were also in the same position. And you told a story and then she became you know sometimes people can't follow these stories that are about power right (laughs) that are about like these forces or like government agencies or whatever and you through her story, you put a face on the issue that people could hold on to and have a better understanding of what was actually happening with the stadium. I, yeah, that was, I think, the, I think so. the, the attempt. Well, um, thank you. Yeah, uh, that, that's and that's kind of the attempt a lot of times, I think, with, with the work that I'm trying to do, at least the more narrative, long-form work, is like the, the human element is like super important and the experiences that people are going through are, are really important because these are their lives and this is like everything to them and the rest of it the, the tracing the power back tracing the money back like finding the documents is all just in service of like hey this person's experience is really important you know like and, and we need to like pay attention to it um and i think that was the story where that worked um worked out um so that's that's something i'm proud of uh I think one other story that I would highlight that um, is a few years old now uh, is one about uh, people who come to Cincinnati as, as refugees um, because it both included, uh, it's called Seeking Refuge, and it both included the sort of really negative and, and hard experiences of people who come here from places like uh, Burundi or uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo or um, Iraq in, in one case, uh, and like some of the more positive things uh, and the contributions and and, uh, and really like wealth of, of community and, and uh, wonderful things that these people are bringing. And the story kind of is in two parts where there's talk about a lot of the folks who are coming from um, Burundi specifically were being put in a, a neighborhood called Millvale without a lot of help and without, I think, without a lot of sort of direction and that wasn't working out very well for them. And then the second part of the story is about a church uh, that uh, many of those folks went to that was about a third uh, Burundian and about a third Guatemalan 
uh, immigrant and about a third sort of like, you know, multi-generation white Cincinnati and sort of what that church looks like and how uh, the church is run by this really diverse group of people and, and the sort of community network that's built at that church. So I'm really proud of that story just because um, there, there's like some positive stuff in there too. <laughs> Yeah, and would would that story fall in the category of you know you, you actually enjoyed reporting it like it was a it made you feel good to do the work? Yeah, absolutely. There, I mean, there were some really hard parts of it too. You know, like interviewing somebody who had been you know like who would witnessed shootings or had been shot uh, in this neighborhood um, that is neglected. I feel like, uh, but then yeah, like being able to go to that church and, and see the sort of wonderful community that was built there. Um, and I'm not a super religious person. I don't go to church a whole lot, but it was just really uplifting to, uh, be with those folks and, and, uh, share a little bit of their community that they were building. So, yeah. So my last question is actually a question from one of your city beat colleagues, uh, our former city beat colleague, Kathy Y. Wilson. I guess she's current. I don't know. It kind of feels like she's emeritus right or emerita like she's she'll always be city beat Kathy is um, always Kathy is forever so <laughs> <laughs> so she encouraged me to ask why won't you publish a limited run of your Cincinnati photos and let her write the foreword and she said seriously in the text she said I'm serious so she really wants to know why are you keeping these photographs from us and why won't you let her write the foreword uh that's a good leave it to Kathy to like put me on blast. Um, I I love Kathy and I actually want her to write the forward to a book of, of photos of mine. Um, I think more it's the bashfulness about the photos. Um, I I don't know that they would live up to a Kathy Y Wilson forward. You got to really burn <laughs> it if Kathy Y Wilson's going to write the forward to your book. Uh, but uh, I I have talked with her about. Um, I take these sort of like long exposure night portraits of Cincinnati, like, uh, because I think that that's a time when Cincinnati is still pretty ambiguous and like uh, all this sort of like, we do a lot of in the city, like uh, placing a narrative on certain places in the city and like deciding that this is the brand of this neighborhood or whatever. And I think like at night in certain parts of the city, that kind of goes away and the city can be whatever it wants to be. Um, mm-hmm. Or it can be multiple things to multiple people, which is beautiful. Uh, and I, I want I want to commission essays from a number of people uh, about that idea, and uh, I certainly want Kathy to be in there. Like she was the first person I mentioned it to when I thought about it, and I mentioned it too early. <laughs> now, now she really wants to do it, and I, I really want right. to do it. So yeah. Now the pressure's on. Yeah, yeah exactly. She's gonna hold you accountable and make sure that it happens. Which is why well, she's awesome. Yes. Where can people keep up with you? I mentioned, I love following you on Twitter, but, um, and I didn't mention this, but your photos appear alongside your story about, um, you know, Cincinnati during this pandemic. Uh, But for folks who want to keep up with you, where can they do that? The pages of City Beat, where else? Um, City Beat's website is a great place to find my stories. Oh, that's right. Mm -hmm. Please click on it 10 or 20 times every time you go there. (laughs) Um, um, also twitter is where i've been really active uh because of furlough and because i am uh, trying to focus on longer projects i have stepped away a little bit more from the daily news reporting uh that i was doing for such a long time and will probably do again Uh, but i try to retweet other great reporters who are doing that daily work so people can find me there and if they want to 
follow to keep up on what's going on. Um, you'll also find other people, great reporters to follow that way too. Um, I also am addicted to Instagram and uh, my Instagram handle is the same as my Twitter handle. It's in Swartzell. And there you'll just find all my weird pictures of Cincinnati at night. Yay. Okay. I'm going to, as soon as we hang up, I will follow you on on Instagram because I am also slightly addicted to Instagram. It's my favorite social media platform. Um, well, Nick, thank you so much for taking time to talk with me. Um, this was a lot of fun and I really admire uh, what you said about you're going to keep writing and publishing and producing journalism because, you know, regardless in the short term of whether or not you get paid because it's it's what you would be doing anyway. And I, I just think that says so much about who you are as a reporter and Cincinnati is really lucky to have you. So thanks so much for making time to talk. Yeah, thank you. This is a pleasure and an honor to be on the show. And thank you all for listening to this episode of Inside the Writer's Head. Keep joining us for in-depth conversations with writers and other lovers of books, journalism, libraries, and the literary arts. See you next time. Special thanks to the Library Foundation for funding the Writer in Residence program. You can meet Danny at various events throughout the year. Learn more by visiting cincinnatilibrary.org slash writer in residence. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss future episodes. And leave us a review. It helps other book lovers find us. Thank you. Thank you.